0: My guest this week is Jeremy Larder, a producer, writer, and director whose credits include two seasons of the comedy series Just Passin' Through and the feature film Poggy Beach, which is now available for rental and purchase on iTunes. Just Passin' Through is a show about two guys from Prince Edward Island who turn up on a Toronto cousin's doorstep, which lines up nicely with Jeremy's pick for the podcast Goin' Down the Road, Don Shabib's 1970 drama starring Douglas McGrath and Paul Bradley as two guys from the Maritimes who head off to Toronto in search of fortune and glory, or at least decent jobs and solid relationships only to be ground down by the big pitiless city. It's a footnote in world cinema, but a landmark in English Canada, so well regarded here that even an awful, awful sequel made 40 years after the fact couldn't end its reputation. It's an important film. You know, if you're from Toronto. This is someone else's movie. I mean, it's,
1: it's still my favorite Canadian film. And um, I saw it when I was in my early to mid-twenties, I think, for the first time. And I had just moved to Toronto from PEI. Okay. So I was <laughs> very much relating to uh, Pete and Joey at
0: yeah. that
1: moment, being how, an East Coaster in the big city.
0: How had you not seen it before then? I would think that it's like, it's almost a cliche at this point that anybody out East is going to experience Toronto through that film. Or I suppose they were in the 70s and 80s when it was you know, constantly being brought up in cultural conversation as, as one of the great defining Canadian films. And I, I, I do think it is, but it's sort of fallen away mm-hmm. recently. Yeah, so, yeah. Is that why you just didn't was it around to be? I don't know. I, I like I'm
1: 39 now, so I was a, like a teen late teenager early 20s like around the 2000 like early 2000. So mm-hmm. I just don't think it was available. It wasn't like readily available then. Like it was kind of hard to find. Like I don't think it be it was a
0: movie that I could have found in my lo- local video store. Yeah. There was a I I remember this. There was a DVD release with um with a really good commentary track by Jeff Pavier. Yes. Um but I don't remember when that happened. It must have been like 2003-2004. That's the one I uh,
1: that's the one I found. Yeah. Um and then when I went to Sheridan Jeff was actually a, a teacher there. So we got to take a few uh GO train trips from downtown <laughs> Toronto to Sheridan and talk movies, which was like a big thrill for me because I used to watch him when he was doing I think he may have been like a reviewer for the C- for C T V back then or something, yeah, as well was... as like his another gig. He was just like very patient. I mean, I was just like a twenty-four, twenty-five year old film student, like, you know, picking his brain and chatting. So but he was he was really good about talking about anything.
0: So Yeah. So did Going Down the Road come up?
1: Yeah, I think it did. I remember we talked about Hal Ashby movies a lot and mm-hmm. it was around that time, I think it may have been just before my year at Sharon that I discovered the D V D of going down the road with his commentary. And uh and yeah, I think that must have been a movie that came up because it was very prominent in my mind at that time.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, as someone who's come from the east to Toronto, how did, what was your experience of the film? How did you, how did you find it?
1: Well, I mean, I was just struck by how authentically maritimes it was because I think that's like a very hard thing to do. For I mean, Shabib, I think he's got, I think he said he had relatives like uncles or aunt, like an uncle or something who. Basically, lived that story more or less yeah. um, of going down the road. But I, I was struck by how authentic it felt to me. Like it just seems like it's a thing. It's very difficult for actors like to put on East Coast accents, and um, but yeah, I was. Just, and, and I also had friends of my family, uh, my dad's age, who had gone to Toronto in the seventies. So they had stories about coming <laughs> to Toronto, yeah. and it just it just felt very real to me. Like it just felt like a very authentic. Story of two East Coasters.
0: Yeah, it's one of those films that has never felt fully real to me, and I'm not totally sure why. The documentary style is amazing, but I was a kid in Toronto in the 70s, and when they go down to, you know, Yonge Street to to the misery walks that they take because they're lonely and aimless, when I was... 12 or 13 and doing that for the first time on my own, it was the greatest experience. I, I had a completely different reality. Mm-hmm. And so watching it again as I got older and realizing, oh, no, of course, you idiot, you had no understanding of anything that these guys were going through, or The, let alone the, the rural to urban migration story that, that is apparently what Shibib wanted to tell before. Like according to a couple of Canadian encyclopedia sources, it was originally developed as a documentary project, which makes no sense to me. Um, Shabib was thinking about shooting it and just following some, some people and then decided that it would work better as a narrative and somehow that transmogrified into the documentary style verite story that mm-hmm. he, he did shoot. It's That's never made sense to me. And the documentary would have been completely different I I, I would think just because you're dealing with a story that makes you know like it doesn't make sense as as Mm -hmm. non-narrative I don't even know what I'm saying anymore it's it's I'm trying to understand this film that makes no sense to me that it exists the way it did Mm -hmm. in what way does it make does it not make sense to you well it's the it's the birth of English Canadian cinema and it's the story of an incredibly mundane depressing reality that somehow feels alive Mm -hmm. and immediate and instant and all I can think of is if you did this as a documentary it would have just been mundane. It would have been, you know, um, Frederick Wiseman kind of level of, of flat despair, Mm -hmm. which is not a negative thing. It's just that the movie that it is is so alive and electric and weird. Um, it's a movie that is inventing a kind of cinema because it doesn't know it shouldn't be doing it. I guess that's it. Like the idea that it, that the story it tells is so miserable and downbeat. It's a story about two guys who have their entire youth and energy and vitality and optimism chewed up and spat out by the smallest worst decisions people can make Mm -hmm. and being each other's worst enabler and you know just like people leave their wives all the time Like it's just it's horrible except that it's so alive that you sort of understand how they're talking each other into this stuff because it's just like they're drunk all the time and it's a kind of a good time feeling that they're desperately exuding it's it it should be so depressing and somehow every time i watch it it's weirdly upbeat and perky even though it ends very very badly
1: yeah it 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 does and the thing i noticed when i watched it again recently was that uh how much of it's it's pete pete is the one that's like pulling joey along joey doesn't really he's kind of just like a very passive uh, passive passenger on the train he's yeah. not really doing a whole lot he's kind of going with the flow and and I just because I, I, I never noticed that before how much it's Pete's it's really Pete's story and like he's at one point like Joey he'd be perfectly happy like settling down with Jane Eastwood's character and yeah, and having a life there's You're a like, kid on the way That's, he's got a kid on the way and he's, he's, he's totally happy to settle there but it's really Pete who's driving them to like keep looking for that dream and keep You know, to keep going west. It's not working in Toronto, let's just leave.
0: Yeah, just the sense that if you keep moving, nothing can catch you. Mm -hmm. But the desolation that they're leaving in their wake. I mean, they're just... Everyone they meet is going to be diminished by knowing them. I guess that's what's so weird about it. If you look backwards, it's, oh yeah, this guy destroys this woman's life, beats this other guy up in a parking lot. Like Everything they do, with the best of intentions, goes so badly. So quickly, and yet the film just chugs right along with them, like the movie knows, but it's trying its best to keep up with them, and so we sort of get suckered into it as well, yeah, I mean, no Pete's not a good person, no, but he is so enthusiastic and chummy i th- actually, I gotta say the last time I watched this, I started thinking about Fight Club, mm-hmm. which makes no sense, <laughs> but kind of does, right, like it's that weird. Toxic enthusiasm, your friend who just constantly makes the wrong decisions, but you love him, so you keep going along with him. And yeah. Then after a while, you convince yourself that maybe they're
1: not the wrong decisions. That's just interesting. Look, see how it plays out. Uh, today, like, When I just watched it, I, I was thinking about Mean Streets a lot for some reason. Okay, yeah. It, really, it, was, it was reminded me of like, the Charlie um, and Johnny, Boy, Johnny you know? Boy relationship. I had never thought of that either before. How much, yeah, these, these two friends who were kind of like helping each other make terrible choices. Yeah. And going down this bad path together, and we, there's like no way to stop it, basically.
0: Yeah, and maybe that's the difference between American and Canadian cinema at that time, too, because um, the Ebert review of of Going Down the Road, which was way more enthusiastic than I remembered, I went back and reread it, and he loved it. He he actually held it up as the uh, the anti Husbands, Um he said that the. The rawness and the reality—I'm horribly paraphrasing—the rawness and reality of, of the performances in *Going Down the Road* puts the lie to Cassavetti's movie about a bunch of actors narcissistically killing time in front of a camera. Uh, and this is the movie that Cassavetti's would have made when he—or the, the Cassavetti's of *Shadows* would have made. Mm-hmm. And watching it now, it feels like the difference is that the Canadian film is non-judgmental, and the Americans need a moral ending. They always need to have punishment or come up and or misery. *Going Down the Road* is like it ends with us knowing what they don't which is that this is you're going to regret this that this isn't going to go well mm-hmm. the next trip isn't going to go well the next destination is going to be just as bad like edmonton's not going to do any better
1: no assuming they and there's no far. young street on it in, in yeah either. like
0: what are you going to do with no young street it's just yeah <laughs> that that sense that if we keep going we'll find the best dream we'll find the best place um there's a specific kind of naivete but it's also about the myth making of canada right like mm-hmm. toronto was the place toronto still the place to be unless you go to vancouver and that's what happens in the sequel and ha- have you seen the sequel
1: i haven't watched the sequel i was intrigued by it but i didn't i didn't want to at because the film has a kind of a special place in my heart and i just didn't really i'm happy knowing that those two guys went on the road and they just went west and i don't need to know anymore
0: yeah that's fair the sequel is i mean it picks up in vancouver and it's or near vancouver and it just yeah it shouldn't be it shouldn't exist it's one of those things that just doesn't need to be um especially since one of the actors had died by the time it mm-hmm. started and, and it was just all about reckoning with that space that that his absence leaves and a film about pete reckoning with the loss in his life is not nearly as interesting i suspect as a film about joey reckoning with it that would have been yeah like, that would have been the story worth telling yeah and so yeah if you haven't seen it there's really no point going further and if people are listening please don't bother just stick with the original
1: but i'm glad that that um don Shiba kind of like he found his love for his his own movie again because i remember when he he came to our class at sheridan oh yeah in 2005 and um everyone was very excited to have him come in And every all everyone wanted to talk about was going down the road and then he came in and he was very, he didn't even have it on his reel. Like he showed us a reel of his work and he didn't have going out, going down the road on it. And everyone was kind of stunned and he didn't want to talk about it. And he seemed to have like a kind of like a grudge against it. And we were a bit shocked by that. Um, and He's, it seems like it somehow, somewhere after that, he found an appreciation for this movie again. So I was happy that he was at least kind of reckoning with this work that he had made,
0: yeah, that really surprises me. I mean, I, I mean, well, I guess I can sort of see it. Uh, you know, if if you make this one thing that refuses to go away, and everything else you do isn't that thing, like he did other film. He he did other work that is very very good. It's just not the same thing. And yeah, if he'd left and come back, maybe it would have been easier. But in Canada, we're not really too uh, crazy about people who succeed. We, we haven't yet figured that out. Mm-hmm. If you succeed on your own terms and continue doing interesting work, apparently that's less interesting than if you succeed here, go to America, and then come home. And we're, like the culture is more easily uh, accessible that way. People are more willing to celebrate you if you've left and come back, which never made any sense to me. But that is, of course, what going down the road is almost about. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, I, just, I think it is. Yeah. It's such a strange... It's an underdog movie about people who have the um, they have they're brave enough to risk everything and and try and then as soon as it's difficult as soon as like the second things don't go their way uh, yeah I'm really wrestling with it I'm, I'm even just describing it sounds like. An incredibly banal experience. These two guys come to this town, they, they they kind of start relationships, one of them falls in love, buys some stuff on credit, and then loses his job at the bottling plant. Like, it sounds like self-parody now. Mm-hmm. But in nineteen seventy that was revelatory for a lot of people. We hadn't seen you know Canada was such a Canada is still such a big country that we don't really interact except through our culture with other parts of it. So movie about two Maritimers coming to Toronto would be seen here and would be embraced here possibly because it was Canadian and because it told the story and because it was this ugly reality and now it's this weird historical document of how we saw each other Mm -hmm. and how the most conventional narrative is the thing you need to tell that story like you have to plug it into something recognizable so they're not caricatures yeah and then you get Performances, you get the life of it.
1: Well, those the performances in the movie are what still I think are the major standouts. Like, I mean, I can't remember the actor name who plays Joey, but like he is obviously such a wild card. I mean, you can just see it; like it just like comes out of him that he's a complete, you know, loose cannon to a certain extent. And how they corralled him into like giving that performance, I don't know how like what Shabib had to do to kind of wrangle him. I'm pretty sure the actor who played Pete.
0: Was a professional, but I don't yeah, even know the story about um, Joey Dan McGrath. Dan McGrath, Yeah, we can look it up. If, I mean, we can take a second because I'm suddenly realizing I don't recognize that name. I, it's not coming to my mind either. Paul Bradley, because
1: he did a few films after that, but I don't, I don't
0: think he was a trained actor. I'm just gonna look it right up here. Yeah, he worked. He made a few movies. A film called Stone Cold Dead. A film called um, Cross Country. Blind side, he worked throughout the... Se- well, not throughout, but he worked regularly through the 70s and 80s. Was he born... Did you did say if he was born on the East Coast? I, I just know. says born in Canada. <laughs> Died in Victoria in 2003. 2003. Yeah.
1: But he de- he definitely comes across as authentically East Coast. Um, to me, at least, anyway. But he's just full of such life. I mean, and there's so many wonderful... And, like, everyone who's in the background, all the extras... And, like, the other guys in the bottling plant are kind of, like, part of their little crew. Like, mm-hmm. they just feel so real. Like, it it just has, like, an air of authenticity to it that, that still, to me, is kind of remarkable.
0: Yeah. Well, it's that, like, that's the thing that makes me believe that it was conceived as a documentary project. Just the sense of verite and the sense that they were looking for people being themselves who were just existing in the moment, the scene in Allen Gardens, mm-hmm. where you just suddenly see, oh yeah, Toronto does kind of have this weird lively arts culture. And the idea that in nineteen seventy that they would go to Young Street instead of Yorkville, which was where like all the countercultural revolutionary stuff was happening, that makes perfect sense because they wouldn't have known about Yorkville or they would have dismissed it as being too, you know, too weird and flower childy.
1: Um, well, yeah, yeah there's, the, there's the great scene in the Sand the Record Man store, too, oh, which yeah. is kind of like a beautiful lyrical scene. Like the music in that scene is, is so, and there's like the interaction between um, Pete and that woman and just the glances back and forth. It, it, it's full of musical montages. like, And that's another thing that I kind of forgot about how it's got these, like, it's got like five or six great musical montages st- strung throughout that tell so much of the story of the two guys. Yeah and it's
0: stuff that was clearly found in the moment right like they 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 are the, the montages are so different from the the way the regular conventional dialogue stuff unfolds mm mm-hmm. so i just i wondered this time through you know, like did they pick it up did they figure it out did they go back and patch it together and and is this how you cover a scene that you didn't quite get or is this always the plan was it supposed to contrast with these 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 longers almost of of dialogueless encounter the sense of the city is that what we're getting is it's like it's it's this weird puzzle because it feels like it's not playing by the rules mm-hmm. um, and then you realize that yeah it, it it's literally figuring it out I've already said this I'm sorry,
1: I'm repeating myself no it, I, I, yeah, it's funny because it is very much in the verite documentary style and it's shot that way, but the scenes are actually covered fairly conventionally like it's like a lot of the movie is shot like a very conventional film, but yet it still has that documentary feel throughout, and even the way, like, there's a scene of the guys when they, on the first night when they're in Toronto and they they have to go to the Salvation Army, and they, they're sitting in those little bunks, and yeah. there's the shots of the other men, it, look, it looks like they actually walked into the Salvation Army and, like, filmed actual people that I were there, assume, yeah. and just stuck the two actors in with them, and the camera's kind of back, and they're on the long lens, and they're just watching them, and the two actors just fit in with all these other faces that are in that space. Yeah. It just fe- it does feel like you're watching a documentary.
0: Yeah, you get the sense that the city is alive around them. Mm-hmm. That it's not just sets and, and, and you know, background management. That people are being steered through a scene. You know, it's that whole thing where every uh, every TV show now with a walk and talk will have one actor, one, one day player, walk past the camera first to let you know the real story is about to start. That weird cue. There's none of that. There's no sense that this stuff was thought out or planned elaborately it's just boom here we are in the moment it's happening right now mm-hmm. and yeah sam the record man and, and the salvation army these are all they're locations that would have been hard to manage in 1970 just because there's so much stuff going on in the city
1: it, it, but it, fe- it feels like they just walked in sam the record man and shot the scene like it seems like they just walked upstairs with the camera yeah. and maybe some sound equipment and just shot the scene at the, in, in, the, in the upstairs that stand the
0: record and walked out. <laughs> no, yeah. That's what I, it feels like. I don't know what that's what they did, but... I wouldn't be surprised. That's the other thing, too, now that you mention it, that I'm realizing it's the lighting that looks natural and real because it is. Yeah. There is no kit. There's no crew for most of the stuff. You're just seeing people in rooms and people in stores with available light, and it does change your relationship to the story. Like, somehow in your brain, you just think, oh, this is real. This is actually happening.
1: Yeah. And actually Richard Leiterman, who was the DP, was an instructor at Sheridan. So he was there. I think his last year at Sheridan was was the year that I was there. Oh, yeah. So it was amazing to have him around. He was a he was a great guy. Just as a side note. But uh yeah, it just has that but it is because like it then it also has this this very conventional sort of Holly not a Hollywood narrative, but it does have that kind of like classic rise and fall it's story. Like structure, yeah. Structure that's strung throughout it. Um yeah, although their rise is really just color TV. Their rise, <laughs> their rise is a couple of fun nights on uh, Young Street, and uh, well, then there's like the scene at the Maritimer's Bar, which is another fantastic scene where they like, it looks like they just like walked into a bar in Toronto, and there happened to be a performer up there. I, I imagine they didn't get permits or clearances for anything or oh, anyone.
0: Yeah, and no, you didn't have to do that then. Like no one knew you needed those things.
1: Yeah, so they're just. I think they just. You know, there's like this guy singing the song about Nova Scotia and they're um, Paul Bradley looks like he's had a few <laughs> in the scene and I don't know it's just it, it, the film is full of those wonderful scenes so it's like when it's not when you say it's not playing by the rules like there is something to that where it has those great imp- improv real life just in the moment scenes mixed in with these scripted dialogue scenes that sort of manage to kind of fit in and you can't really see the cracks or the
0: seams that much. Yeah, well it has such a strange energy that that anything can happen, right? Like it's possible for all of this stuff to be happening while we're watching it because it's it's the film is open to that. Maybe that's why the structure works so well because part of your uh, expectations are that they're going to go and have an adventure and then we will learn something. Like that's what narrative is, but the things that happen are strange and unpredictable in a way that a road trip movie would be except they don't really keep driving. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a road trip movie where you stay still if that makes any sense. Yeah. We see where they came from. We see where they are. And then in the end they're moving again and even the title just sort of explains that that's what's going to be happening that, that this is a film about leaving or, or going forward but then you, in the end you realize that they're going forward because they can't look
1: back. Yeah, they can't look back even though it, that's an element of it. Well, that's what makes the peak character so different than your average maritimer I would say most
0: maritimers always want to go back mm-hmm. so is that just a uh, nativist impulse like things are better at home or is it
1: well I don't know we're just very I, I, I mean it's a generalization I think that just maritimers like if I know a lot of people who came to Toronto and various places you know and they're looking for different things in their lives and if it doesn't work out after a few months like the impulse is to always go back home we're just very tied to home. Like, it's just kind of like if something doesn't work or, if, you know, and a lot of people my age now are moving back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joey in <clears throat> the film has that instinct to go back. Yeah. A couple of times he's ready to go back.
0: And he's not wrong. He's he, not wrong. He'd no. probably be better off.
1: <laughs> well, in, in, in the end, when they have to make their quick escape from the city, like they would be so much better off if they just go back east than keep going west you know you just know that that's not going to work out very well
0: yeah and that's the other underlying thing right the idea that the thing they're most afraid of is not making it so mm-hmm. if you go home and if you go home to safety you're also admitting that you couldn't hack it out west and so they'll just keep going west until they find a place where they can and we know we know that's not going to work the mm-hmm. audience by that point 90 minutes in it's just like, oh no, buddy you're not going to make it this is this is not how you behave in the world and I, I could never figure out uh, if it's an indictment of naivete or optimism if like, if Shabib is saying something about small towns because Toronto is still a pretty small town all things considered in 1970 but it's too big for them uh, because as soon as you know um they fall in love with the comforts, they fall in love with and they're 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 not that comfortable. It's a little house or there's a little apartment. Yeah, they're both stuck in that one apartment together. Yeah. And then their ambitions are very modest. And the city still kills them. Like the city still destroys their hopes. And and it's not anything that they do or don't do. I mean, there are wrong choices, but like they come out honestly. They're here to they're here to work, they're here to find Relationships, they're here to, to make themselves happy and nobody cuts corners and they're working at a bottling plant and it's all like it's all perfectly legitimate and still their optimism won't save them. Because it's no. the first challenge that they all fold like well they don't fold, but Pete folds. Yeah. And and pulls, Joey and pulls Joey along
1: with him. Pulls Joey along with them. And um, and Pete brings Joey to basically convinces Joey to come to Toronto isn't it, these are other little details that I kinda of forgot yeah, about yeah. until I rewatched it, but it's Pete that convinces Joey to come to Toronto and then promises them that they have a place to stay and promises Joey that they have a job waiting for them when they get there. And that turns out to be bogus. As soon as they get there they find out that neither he, they find out that neither of those things are true. They don't have jobs and they don't have a place to stay. So immediately you know that things are not gonna work out for these two lads very yeah. well.
0: Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure I must have seen the SCTV parody of it first. Oh yeah, is that was that your experience as well?
1: Um, I'm not sure if I saw the parody first, but I remember actually it was funny because it was when Shabib came to my class to share and that Shabib said that he thought the SCTV sketch was better than going down the road. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think it was after that that I was, that I saw the SCTV sketch.
0: Okay, I mean it does have better timing. I mean I, I, I will give them that. It's their the cutting and, and the timing of it is amazing. It's because you can only. You know, you're doing it in seven minutes, so you can't go wrong. It's, you're basically getting the greatest hits of the film. Oh yeah, and, uh, and then through the lens of of
1: parody. And whenever would, you know, when they get stuck anywhere, it's this Young Street, and then they go cut straight to Young Street. Yeah, and everything's solved.
0: And it's a weirdly good-natured version of the of the actual events of the film. Like the the SCTV parody is somehow more open-hearted than the film itself, mm-hmm. um, which which was the thing that confused me I, when I saw the movie. I finally realized, yeah, this is mean. This is like, it's a story about optimism being rewarded with failure. But it's also, there's a domestic drama in here that's absolutely shattering. And I think that's the thing I've been trying to, to talk around this whole time. The, the idea of, like, if you saw the whole movie from Janie Swood's point of view, which they kind of come close to in the sequel, it's a horror story. It's the story of this nice woman who picks the wrong guy. Yeah, and gets left behind, and none of that is in the SCTV version, which I know I must have seen beforehand because I was obsessively watching all that. So to come to the movie, I think that's why I keep seeing it as harder and meaner than it really is, just because that nice lady—it's—it's awful to watch that happen.
1: Yeah, uh, in retrospect, I'm a parent now too, so that element of it really resonates with me more. Like the how awful it is that he just they just pick up and go and leave her in that situation. Um, it is pretty horrific and kind of unforgivable. An unforgivable thing to do. And it's not Joey, it's Pete. It's Pete that's t- like basically pulling Joey along and convincing him to like just leave town and leave his wife and unborn
0: child. Yeah. He doesn't even offer the we'll come back no. thing. The thing that you would think would be the one thing that would make it okay. It's just like, nah, let's go. We'll just go. And... Maybe, uh, not maybe. I mean, it feels to me. It definitely feels to me like a solidarity thing. Like they're not our people. We can. She's not one of us. We can just go. But you can see it in. Like you can see it in Joey. He doesn't. He doesn't feel that way. And there's, there's this moment of 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 um of sort of elasticity where if he snapped back, he wouldn't necessarily be the happiest person in the world. But he would. He could have felt. He could have found a way. He could have made a life. He could have been. A, there's a way to make it okay, mm-hmm. and yeah, the fact that the movie just doesn't give us that is so. There's that, and there's nobody wave goodbye as just Canadian films that are absolutely unsentimental about the awful things people do to each other uh, out of self-justification, and I don't know which one lands harder, but they're both surprisingly mean-spirited about that, and and it's not even mean-spirited; it's just honest. Right, people make bad decisions in the world all the time, and. That's it. You're you're denied this the happy ending or any even semblance of happiness. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of impressed that the sequel is all about regret even though it doesn't seem to know it is. It doesn't the movie doesn't work at all. The um this the sequel. Yeah, I think I think I read your review of it. Yeah, you're yeah, a big fan of it. I hated it. Um and it's just it's one of those things, and I, I really don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about it, but I'm still mad at it. Uh, it's one of those films where it doesn't it doesn't betray the original. It's it's a, a reasonable continuation, but at the same time, you understand that it's the least interesting version of that story, and you know it's just the it's the wrong perspective. It's McGrath is weirdly passive, um, and not in a way that that Pete would be he's just gone off and ended up in Vancouver and he's happy he works as a mail carrier and everything's fine and then he gets Pete's ashes and is asked to drive them back and, and that's the movie basically and it's just not compelling or interesting and there's no reckoning with, with his own past because he's not the kind of guy who does that and that's sort of the problem like again if, if it was if it was Joey it would be a more interesting film but the reason it's so disappointing is that the original is so rich, I think, and and there is so much going on in in Shabib's film, economically and and um, emotionally and mm-hmm. and socially. Again, like it, it's 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 this fascinating piece of a city that I lived in and I was here for, and I didn't. I was two. I mean, it's not my <laughs> fault. But there are strata in the city that are revealed in that movie that are uh, fascinating to me, even though. Or not even though, because I never encountered them. Because they were just gone by the time I was old enough to go down to Yonge Street. And that now Toronto is so completely different as to be unrecognizable almost 50 years later.
1: Yeah. And the funny thing is, like I think East Coasters, uh, like Yonge Street, going to Yonge Street is still like a thing. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's because of going down the road, but or the SCTV sketches, or, or what, but... Probably some combination of the combination two. Combination of the part. two. Um, and Toronto always has like a weird... There's always like a weird... Um, not hatred. That'd be too strong. But there's a lot of disdain for Toronto. Oh yeah. Back East. Oh no. The
0: rest of the country hates us. We know that. <laughs> but I feel like that's
1: easing off a bit. Am I wrong with that? Like, do I feel like the, the whole hating Toronto thing is kind of like cooled off? I hope slightly? so.
0: Um, I don't know. Like I've lived here my whole life, and I'm I'm well aware that just in terms of culturally, uh, we are the 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 great Satan of Canada, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably because. You know, we we present ourselves as the economic and and political capital, even though that's, I mean, it's probably true, but it's also not true because Ottawa is literally the capital. So I think if you spend all of your time outside of Ontario watching Toronto take credit for everything that Canada does, yeah, you could probably get tired of that really fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now between Toronto and Vancouver, I think we're equally hated in terms of real estate and, and livability and all that stuff. And everything else.
1: So how do you feel like where for go for you where, where's going down the road place in terms of like great toronto mo- movies or good toronto movies
0: I think I mean I think it's an essential one in terms of showing us a toronto that isn't there anymore mm-hmm. uh, the same way that a lot of cronenbergs early films are video drum for example it's like his last early film it's the mid before the midpoint started that's a that's practically a document of city tv in the in the early 80s and the um, the world that it shows is, is amazing to me because I walk those streets and I remember those locations, but they're all gone now. You can't find them. Uh, going down the road is the same, although it's even more further back. And there's a scene, when they first come
1: into the city too, I was trying to figure out where that was. Like there's one shot where they're shooting from behind the car. Oh, they're come, driving in on the gardener, definitely. Driving in on the gardener, but then there's one shot in particular where they're kind of like g- coming into the city for the first time. Like there's like the shots in the gardener and then there's like a shot from behind them, and it looks like, but I can't place this street anywhere. It's like kind of a residential, like it could be Bloor maybe oh, yeah, or it's somewhere. It's nothing, kind of hard to tell.
0: Yeah, nothing was developed then. So you it, it is entirely possible when you drove off the ramp, you would just see houses. There's a section of the Don Valley Parkway that leads out into... uh, It it exits onto the Danforth, basically, and and that's... You turn around, you go up a hill, and there's houses, but the shape is wrong. It's not... It can't be that. Um, I'm sure Torontoists must have done a uh, going-down-the-road location breakdown. Yeah. They do do remarkable ones for anything shot here. Yeah. There's, like, a
1: very... Yeah, and, like, a very uh, detailed one but Degrassi. The original Degrassi. I've seen that one. Yeah. and then, there, yeah, there's a scene on Toronto Island, too, where, like, the skyline is just, like, it's just completely different.
0: Yeah, there's, like, three buildings. But it's... people
1: are still lounging around Toronto Island the same way.
0: Yeah, that, <laughs> that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed that much. It's that, That's one of those things that comes back every now and then. there's, um, uh, Denier Khan made a movie called An Eye for Beauty that has a, a lengthy scene. The end of the first act is set on the Toronto Islands in a house. And it feels like you're peeking into some fantasy world that doesn't exist because it's, uh, one of the characters. I think she's a paralegal or a, or a lawyer. Uh, takes the the protagonist home with her and she lives on the island. And so they ride bikes through the city to get to the ferry and then they take the ferry over and then you see the little community and you just keep thinking, this is like a Wicker Man movie. This is some <laughs> secret society just off Toronto. What's going to happen? And it, nothing happens. They just have sex and in the morning they leave. They leave with them, but yeah. it's so strange to see that little digression into a part of the city that just nobody thinks about except the people who live there and yeah going down the road has the same effect on me because I'm seeing a world that's just gone now I'm not and I'm not I was never privy to it it's like watching um, I assume it's like watching early arcon films in Montreal I must feel mm-hmm or, or Shivers a rabid the films that Cronenberg shot there because that's a Montreal where I've been there. I've walked. I I remember actually making a point in one of my trips there to go to the locations just to see, and it, it's all gone. There, none of that is there anymore, and it's such a strange, Hall of Mirrors experience. You know, New York films are are, the same way. Or, or The The Exorcist uh, gave us the Georgetown steps, which now just pay off in an apartment building, and it's really not that interesting. But it's it's really fascinating to revisit your own history because people just weren't making movies in Toronto and, and you have this slice of the city other than Sam the Record Man where I spent most of my teen years right. but that stuff was just foreign and alien to me and now it's a warming nostalgia in the Sam scene and seeing the A&A sign next to it and on the street and all, all that the stores that have long since vanished
1: yeah and I was always curious like the bottle that bottling plant I'm like where exactly was because it's just like they're at the bottling plant and then they're just Cut to they're in downtown Toronto. Yeah, and I'm it's like, massive. There, that would have been a huge, huge chunk volume of real estate. Yeah, and it had to be like outside the city, so I'm sure you know, not couldn't been in. I don't think that was in the core.
0: So I'm like, these guys are kind yeah. of like. I remember, I think the pop shop wasn't too far outside. Really, to the northwest, if I remember correctly. I, I grew up in um, Downstream, and I always thought it was around there somewhere. Okay, but again, I was a sheltered child, and I may have simply decided that it must be nearby. Nearby. Um, and when I was watching
1: the film again, I was thinking about um, a friend of my father's who moved to Toronto in the 70s. And he got a job. He actually got a decent job. This is, would have been after going down the road, but I think it was like in the mid 70s at some point. He moved to Toronto from PEI and then got a decent job working in some kind of a factory that paid better than it would have back home. Right. And he worked four days a week, Monday to Thursday. And then every Thursday, he would get in his car and drive back to PEI. Oh God. To spend the weekend on PEI. And then he'd drive back straight back. To go to work to on Monday. To go to work on Monday. Oh my God. <laughs> he would do that every week. How long
0: did that last?
1: I don't know, I can't imagine it though I think it was like a six months or seven months. Like he was here for like a year or something like that. But yeah. and what was the drive like then? That's like a day and a half, isn't it? Well it's like a solid seventeen hour drive. I mean I'm sure he was gunning it the whole way, but yeah. you know, Jesus. he may have been able to get there in fifteen hours. But that's how much he just couldn't resist going back you just had to go back home
0: right and that only works when the weather's good too I mean you couldn't do that in the in the winter <laughs> Not you
1: think now but you never know he, yeah. he may have no, I suppose that's the, the, you just have to be
0: determined you
1: just have to be determined and like in my a friend of mine Jeff who's worked with me on different projects his dad had a Toronto experience where him and I think a cousin moved to Toronto for a year or two and like lived in like a tiny little place together and
0: I'm sure their experience wasn't that different than uh, going down the road yeah I was going to ask you this uh, how authentic do the maritime scenes feel I mean the the prologue the opening segment is that recognizable to you as, as well
1: I, I can't really say if, well, something that I read was that Shibib had, didn't shoot any of the film in the Maritimes at all and I think he's using some stock footage of the Maritimes I mean he's really painting a very bleak portrait of the Maritimes in that Prologue, mm. I, or you know, in the opening, it's it, it didn't. I mean, it could be recognizable East Coast. I mean, that was before I was born, so I'm and I'm sure in some parts of the, of the Maritimes it w- could, would have looked looked
0: like that, like like the homes that he was showing were basically like shacks. Mm. And yeah, I've always just wondered if it's like a Toronto filmmaker's idea of the East Coast because he must have gone. But
1: yeah, no, it feels very, it does, it does feel very like very real Maritimes, but but it definitely is like painting. A bit of a bleak portrait of like the people and and the place. I mean, he has to for that film. Yeah, I'm sure have you have to see where they're coming from. You have to see where they're coming from, and and I'm sure there's other images he could have used, but he's choosing to use these ones. Yeah. And well, with the with the, the Bruce Coburn song though, it's like such a beautiful, sad, yeah. <laughs> opening. Yeah, um, I've
0: always wondered how that would have played outside Toronto. Like just you know Toronto doesn't come off particularly well but the Maritimes does not look good at all in, no. this, in this vision in
1: this vision but i mean i mean maritimes were, were leaving like the, i think in the 70s it was a time where people were leaving in droves to find work and to find better jobs i think the guys are portrayed as cape bretoners i think they're from they're supposed to be from cape breton so i think you know if they had coal mines and, there's supposed to be guys who worked in coal mines, it seems like it definitely would have been something that you know they would have done, yeah. And I'm sure it was very relatable to a, a ton of people there back in 1970,
0: yeah. I also have no idea, realizing now, just how broadly screened this film was. I mean, it's not like it had you know, it wasn't a blockbuster for Canada, it was a small drama, kitchen sink uh, drama on the circuit you would have played. I mean, things played longer at the time, but I can't imagine it had, you know, a hundred screen release or anything. No, I can't imagine. Yeah, I
1: have no idea how widely seen it would have been. I mean, sure, the SCTV sketch would have brought way more attention to it than its original run, I'm guessing. I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah. even They even got Jane Eastwood in there, which is kind of amazing. Which Which is amazing, yeah. yeah.
1: She has, like, a go-to every time that something goes wrong. I don't know if it's like, oh, jeez. Yeah, I think so. She's got something like that she keeps going back to. And like, so much of the movie in the second half of it is kind of on her face. I didn't Yeah. realize that either until I watched it again, like how much of it is just kind of like on her very sad face. You know that this isn't going to end up well for Jane Eastwood. Yeah.
0: Well, it's the heart of gold wisdom thing. I mean, it, it's a trope in its own way that that women in these films are always always smarter than the men, um, but yeah, again, if you see it from her perspective, it's a genuine tragedy. You're watching someone get her heartbroken and get stuck with a child and and uh, a husband she may never see again. And mm-hmm. somehow, yeah, the movie goes out on a, a high note with that because they're for a second we're in their heads, we're we're like we can believe that there's a better. Possibility, because we've seen what they've gone through, and we've seen that there's a chance that they can start again. And yeah, it's it's such a weird experience to sit back and, and think about this movie that basically feels pretty good while you're watching it, and then just shivs you mm-hmm. <laughs> this, with this sense of uh, abdicated responsibility. And this, yeah, and
1: it, it's like it it feels to me like a fairly accurate depiction of how people end up on the streets. Like how people are just kind of like one step away from losing it all. You know, through either through bad choices or just kind of circumstances out of their control. Yeah. You know, like once they lose their job in the bottling factory, like that's kind of the beginning of the end. The clock is ticking. The clock is ticking and they just can't recover. They just can't get their bearings after that. And it's just... I don't know who came up with the idea to rob that store, but... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think we both know Pete did. Yeah, yeah
1: we both know Pete did. <laughs> I think we did the cav- But Joey was very into the- eating the caviar. That was yeah. You
0: know, yeah, yeah. It's the idea of you know replacing
1: the, the craft dinner.
0: Yeah, the there's thing. an easier way to get everything you want. You just have to be. You have to be willing to to set everything about yourself aside and and harm someone. It really, you know, like it's all there. It's all right in front of us. The the. Uh, the appeal of the big city and the price you have to pay, and it's it's a simple morality tale, but it does such a great job of creating that layer of 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 charm over it. And you know, I, the, you can watch this movie now after uh, two or three viewings and go, "Oh, Pete's a monster! Like he really is, just using Joey.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: gets lonely and wants a traveling buddy. That's clearly the only reason any of this stuff happens."
1: Yeah, and somehow he can't accept Joey just settling down and doing his own thing. Right. It's like you know? when, when Joey finds like a woman that he he loves, he says this to him. Like he's not. It's not a, like a. He doesn't just happen to get her pregnant and want to get married because he got her pregnant. He actually says that he loves her. Yeah. To uh to Pete in a scene where they in the bathroom of a bar, and. Yeah, you get the sense that somehow P just can't accept Joey settling for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why it means so much to him to have his buddy just like accepting, like he's, he'd be happy working at the bottling factory and having a child and being married. But for some reason, P can't accept that. It's like, wait, yeah.
0: just go on your own. Like, well, why he can't, can't be left behind? Right. Like, he can't. If it's that classic sociopath's dilemma, right? Like, if someone else is successful, I must be miserable. So he can't succeed. So we, they, they have to be on the same keel mm-hmm. or Joey has to be more of a loser than Pete. And it's it's never spoken like that. I mean, you keep thinking about all the ways that a movie would ruin this now by having one big speech or one big revelation or, you know, the Christian Bale moment where uh, the, 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 the mask cracks and we see just how awful Pete is and how much he's enjoying Joey's misery. I don't think. I think the film is better for not having any of that because obviously it's been floating around for fifty years and I'm only just figuring it out now. Mm-hmm. But but there is so much uh, matter of factness in that in that performance where McGrath is just like no, I got a better idea. Whatever it is, it's just like no, let's do something else. Let's do let's leave. Let's rob. Let's let's break the law. It doesn't really matter. We're not from here. Nothing's going to touch us. And he's right. Nothing will touch them. They'll just keep going. But yeah. The wreckage they leave in their wake, the stuff that is all there just because Pete didn't want to go to Toronto by himself. It's so awful and strangely compelling. Mm -hmm. Just watching them. uh, I know there's this old joke about somebody going to see Rocky a second or third time. It's like, yeah, I really like this movie and he might not lose this time. (laughs) Every time I watch (laughs) Going Down the Road, I want it to work out and I know it's not going to. But there's something so strange and pure about that relationship about how much trust Joey puts in Pete and how horribly he's used by him every single time it's just like oh man come on mm-hmm.
1: you and, could have, you could have been happy and he has a real understanding of Pete too like there's a couple times in the in the film where where Joey calls out Pete like you're never satisfied with anything like this whole idea that Joey's never satisfied or that Pete's never satisfied with anything that's going on yeah. and they they talk about all the jobs that he they've done together and how he's never happy with anything Joey, I think, is like he just wants to drink beer and have a job and be it. But like this constant dream, this big dream of Pete's is this like the thing that's pulling them along and nothing can get in the way of that. So this big idea of being so I mean he kind of he kind of he does he says it out loud. He says that he just wants to he wants to be remembered in some way. He wants to have like some kind of a legacy. Yeah. And he does, he ends up having this terrible legacy of like basically destroying this this woman's life essentially and like like depriving the child of a father and mm-hmm. and everything else, and then there's when you're talking about the speech, I was thinking about the the heartbreaking scene where they're getting well, the re- wedding reception in the hall, yeah it's just like it's so it feels so real and so sad and 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 it kind of reminded me about uh the speech that Jack Nicholson gives about Schmidt or doesn't give. Like this, because Pete is about to say he go. He kind of says a few words, but doesn't say what's on his mind, and kind of restrains himself and holds it in. But you know that there's just this cloud of anger, yeah, just below the surface. And then Joey gives the speech, talking about how he knows that what everybody's thinking because you know he knocked her up, and now they're getting married. And there's just something so heartbreaking about the whole thing. And she's trying to get him to stop. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, she's smarter than both of them. Yeah, she's smarter than both of them. And then and she and then there's the friend character too who's there who he could be with. Like she's interested in him, yeah. but for some reason he just he just it's not good enough for some reason. It's not the dream of the lady who works in the bottling factory who he just the dream right.
0: that he does get the date with. The girl who's too who he's sure is too good for him and she absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, you're right, he, he fixates on that. He wants what he wants. And it's never gonna be enough for him. He'll never be satisfied, because as soon as he gets it, there's that weird... I could never figure out if it's because he's, from... you know, like he's built up the idea of Toronto as being too good in the end, that he rejects it because it's going to... He rejects Toronto before Toronto can reject him. That Pete's dissatisfied all the time. Mm-hmm. Is it because the minute she agrees to go out with him, he can't be interested in her anymore? Once she's attainable, she's no longer a worthy goal? Yeah, I don't know. So the way he's... he sees things is so... Strange and convoluted. Yeah, because
1: he gets he gets very self destructive, and another thing that was coming rattling around in my head when I was watching it the last time was uh, the hustler somehow like that this idea, mm. the whole George C. Scott speech about uh, Paul Newman being a, bo- a born loser, that he just can't help himself in making the wrong decisions and the wrong choices. That there's some element of self destructive. He's got the self destructiveness that he just can't help. And then it was kind of making me think about the Pete character, that he, somehow he has this element of self-destructiveness that he, no matter what comes his way, he would find some reason to not to be satisfied with it or to kind of destroy it. And it's just kind of innate in his personality.
0: Yeah. Until you settle, your potential is limitless, right? Like, you can always do better. Although Pete's idea of doing better is really pretty penny-ante to begin with, but he still can't be satisfied with it. I
1: yeah but it is different coming from the maritimes like, i think maybe more so now maybe it's not the same way now as it used to be but mm. like when you when you're born in a place where all your options don't feel like they're open to you or that you can't do everything like you do kind of have this feeling that that you need to get somewhere else because you can't do what you want to do in the place that you that you grow up in right. or that you grew up in like you just if you, you do feel somewhat limited like and you are to a certain extent in some of the things you're doing, probably not as much as as they were in 1970. Um, but yeah, you you know I can't even imagine what it would feel like to be born in Toronto and like feel like the world is your oyster in the way yeah. that like people could like people do all kinds of things in Toronto. Yeah, you can be a sure. filmmaker, you can work in advertising, or you can do this, or you can do that. You know, back home, like growing up, it does feel to a certain extent that you can't do everything that you want to do but you don't feel that you don't deserve it. You just feel the opportunity isn't there? Yeah, you just feel like the opportunity to do it in your at home is not there. So okay. you do you do kind of like if you're kind of looking for to do certain things, like you do feel like you kind of have to leave to do it.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely nothing I've ever had to deal with here. I mean, part of it is is, you know, privilege and entitlement and luck, but yeah, Toronto, you're constantly surrounded with the examples of the things that you could do, or could be. And yeah, I, I can't I mean I can imagine what it's like, but I can't at the same time really understand it. Mm-hmm. uh what the drive is. So maybe that's part of it too. It's like, Yeah, you were in Sam the Record man, you could've been perfectly happy. What's what's wrong with you guys? Mm-hmm. But of course that's not where they came from. No. I would be perfectly happy to live my entire life in Sam the Record man <laughs> in nineteen seventy.
1: Well yeah, it's funny and then he even uh that scene too like he he grabs that record. Like he 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 just buys a classical music record because this gal that he saw... Because she smiled at him, Because yeah. she smiled at him and she was listening to it, so he's just, like... So he's open to this possibility of, like, other things, of, like, being sophisticated or other possibilities, and then his buddies are busy stealing country albums from the basement <laughs> of the store. Right. You know, so you have this contrast, and, um... But, yeah, I think... I do see like the attitudes of the East Coast a little bit in those two they're kind of they are there in those two characters like this idea that you should just be like just be happy and stay where you are and you know don't expect too much and work is work and you know just be happy that you have a job and you can put food on the table versus right. chasing a dream and do it for sustenance not for meaning yeah yeah, exactly like that is still there I mean it's not there to the same ex- extent now like I see people my age and younger who are pursuing different things um,
0: in in the Maritimes that they wouldn't have been doing 20, 30 years Mm. ago. I mean, is that because it's possible to do it now? And just has the the digital revolution collapsed the world and made it easier? I mean, I know you can make a movie anywhere for $10,000 now, basically, Mm. but that simply wasn't possible when you had to have film processed and developed, and it was expensive on every level. I just don't know if it... Are there other industries that are benefiting from that as well? I think so. I think that
1: there's, like, the entrepreneurial spirit or, like, the kind of, like, the gig industry or mentality now is so pervasive that i feel like there's like people like doing graphic design or starting their own little businesses and feeling like they can do it back back on the east coast when they probably wouldn't have felt that way 15 20 years ago so i feel like that has changed um but of course then like in the 10 15 years ago it was like the whole west like migration west to Alberta, yeah. so like that was you know that kind of so Alberta replaced Toronto as the place to go, hmm. and yeah uh, until the first win- winter, <laughs> <laughs> and then that so then that was like so that whole thing. But then the funny thing is is that Alberta wasn't chewing out maritimers and like chewing up and speeding them out the way that maybe Toronto, the big city, did because mm-hmm. you know people were doing really well out there and coming home and. But again, it's a whole other issue. It's like people go out west now to Alberta, but they're like working for two weeks. They're gone from home like half the year, and it creates a whole other set of complications.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a. Uh, I mean, the world is so different now than it was in nineteen seventy. But I don't know that we are the center of the universe anymore. Everything's shifting. I. That's just, This is above my pay grade. As I start realizing, no, I'm a Toronto guy talking about <laughs> things I don't fully understand.
1: Well, I mean, it is kind of funny, like. Maritimers do stick together it's, we We're kind of Very cliquish in that way Like a, a lot of my Friends from back home Stay together And like there's Like Nova Scotians And New Brunswickers That kind of just like Stay in touch And kind of Like that mentality The yeah. Maritime There's no Maritime Bar anymore but That mentality Definitely still exists
0: I wish there was A Maritime Bar in Toronto Yeah it's weird That there isn't Are there Maritime Or karaoke nights Or something like It's a <laughs> roving thing That goes from place to place I don't know Culturally It must be awaited Capitalizing. Capitalize it's on. all about it capitalizing. It was it's
1: called Going Down the Road. Well, it was called Going Down the Road. Yeah, that's true. The Maritime Rebar in, in the big city.
0: There's got to be a better
1: name. Yeah, there probably is I mean, you could call
0: it Pete and Joey's, but no one would want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would yeah. be watered down and you never get any change from the cigarette machine. It would all be awful.
1: Yeah, it'd all be awful. And Craft Dinner gets a really. There's, that's a very. I forgot about that line that yeah. was in the movie where she offers him so they, they, he gets, Pete gets invited to Joey and his wife's place for supper and they're cooking Kraft dinner yeah I hope you like Kraft dinner it's a
0: weirdly nostalgic moment for me I grew up on that yeah I grew up in Kraft dinner too yeah. and it's also yeah it's it's sweet and sort of naive and mm-hmm. yeah what would it, like? what was Canadian cuisine like in 1970 I don't even know there were steakhouses that's probably it
1: Yeah, I guess. And, like, I guess, like, crap dinner would be a thing that you'd serve for supper. I mean,
0: I don't know. I mean, I had it as a kid for lunch a lot. Yeah, if you weren't especially ambitious, maybe. Or if you were just, or if you were working and you just had to come out. Like, I remember TV dinners with foil on them, basically, Mm -hmm. being a luxury for me when I was a kid. Just because it was was cool and weird and it had, you know, it came out of the oven and it was all formed. But, yeah, they're, it's not exactly bourgeois no To have craft dinner When your friend comes over But it is something sweet And, and Heartfelt Like it is It's a nice gesture
1: It's a nice gesture It's something he will be comfortable with And when you're working like In a bowling alley Or a car wash You know Yeah, yeah. Or a bottling plant Or a bottling plant It'd Just be nice to come home to It'd Be nice to come home to <laughs> Like a Hearty bowl of craft dinner <laughs> Our international audience has got no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> it's macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese. Mac and cheese. Very specific
0: cheese. yellow macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Orange, even. Very orange. Ask Google. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so as far as, as going down the road as, a, as an influence or as a, a part of your, your aesthetic vision, is there anything of the film that you've borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own creative DNA somehow?
1: Um maybe in the way that like to do a lot of our projects we've had to incorporate non-actors into them Mm -hmm. um so that kind of element of spontaneity trying to like maintain spontaneity and kind of like use the moment i think maybe it's kind of leaked into it a little bit um because i feel like he in that film he's kind of using people who were kind of like just doing their jobs like i'm sure the guy who who's, like, playing the bottling plant managers, like the actual manager of the bottling plant, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably. Or a friend. So I think maybe that element of, like, just kind of trying to capture lightning in a bottle with non-actors and trying to keep spontaneity going and, and creating that feeling of something being alive when you don't have professionally trained actors necessarily all the time who can kind of give you that take after take after take. Yeah. Um, and you're just kind of using what's around you. Like, using locations that just that you have access to. They can just like hop in and hop out. and So using some of those elements of verite filmmaking or micro-budget filmmaking, but um, not necessarily done in that same style, but kind of using the people, places, and things that you just have at your disposal. Sure. You know, because he's definitely... It's like a guerrilla film oh. through and through.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you're one of the only guests on this show that's encountered the filmmaker and, and actually gotten to talk to him about it even though he wasn't especially uh, proud of what he'd done, it sounds like. Did you did you actually talk about it in any detail? Did you get the chance with Shibit? Um, I
1: think I may have asked some questions. I think he was kind of... Uh, he was kind of stunned by how much the students wanted to talk about going down the road. I think he was really surprised by how much admiration everyone had for the film. Like, he was he was yeah he definitely hadn't reconciled his feelings about the movie at that time I think that was 2005 Hmm. when he came into our class Um, I didn't get to ask him a question personally I don't think but I was happy it did make me it did make me happy to see that he had gone back to it even though I hadn't I hadn't seen the sequel
0: yeah there was something about that that kind of made me happy that he was willing to go back there yeah prepared to to look at it maybe creatively instead of as a as a weight yeah as a weight because I know it, and it was his first feature and I think what
1: happens sometimes maybe with filmmakers is like as you get older you feel like you're gaining more skills and you understand the medium better and you feel like you're always learning and getting better and improving but that doesn't actually mean that your films are going to get better it's like movies are weird that way yeah. from my point of view it's just, just because you're getting better as a filmmaker doesn't mean the films are necessarily going to be better like somehow that movie has some magical like you talked about the energy of it it just has these weird magical ingredients to it that somehow make it work and maybe looking back on it, he just felt like it was not his best work as a director but that doesn't mean that it's not
0: yeah so yeah that's now. fair right i mean i've i've always uh, soderberg famously sort of wrote off his first four features When he made Schizopolis, he was saying, well, you know, I I can't look at them anymore. And he's finally come back around to, you know, there's a Criterion edition of King of the Hill and Sex Lies finally came out last year. And and it took a long time for him to accept that that other people found worth in them, I think. Mm -hmm. And none of those launched an entire movement of, you know, Canadian cinema, like a national brand was born. On, on the back of Shabib's film, and I'm sure he didn't intend for that to happen when he made it. So maybe that's it, too. You just have to sort of disassociate yourself from the movement around the thing and just look at the thing again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he found a way back, even though I don't respect the end results of the process. Don't see the sequel. You just, you know, my half of my brain is like, send him home with the Blu-ray, let him watch it. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, I just can't, I can't, yeah like the
1: gaping hole of um, not having Paul Bradley in it I, I just can't see how you could really get past that yeah because so much of the movie is about their relationship and the energy between those two guys together um but I love Jane Eastwood so I'd be curious yeah so now, now I'm curious she's <laughs> <It's good>. is- <laughs> Kathleen Robinson's
0: really good too as the daughter um that we've never met that's yeah <sighs> Uh, and they've got that. Car. Is this the same car? The same car, or rep, or or, or another one
1: with the same, yeah, the same the same vehicle, same paint job.
0: Yeah, Pete still has the same car.
1: You can put it that way. So, is the idea that they they stayed together when they went out west? That they had like been together? Like that Pete and Joey kind of stayed. No, as friends? no, no.
0: He's surprised to find out that Joey has died. So he's surprised. Uh, to find so out it's has died. that's where it opens. Really. Okay. It yeah, it would have just been so much more interesting if it had dealt with Joey's regret rather than Pete's lack of same. He's sort of forced to confront the things he's done, but he did them. He didn't do them directly, so he, you know, he's sort of the devil on on Joey's shoulder and going down the road. Mm-hmm. And so, a movie where somebody realizes that he's done all these things, rather than a movie where he realizes that his friend didn't have a great time because of his suggestions, just it's not. It doesn't have the same impact. Right. Um, it's not McGrath's fault, but it's just it's kind of inert. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, you just start. It's it's also long enough that you just start thinking why am I like why did we bother if this is the story you, you wanted to tell? Did, did his career take off after going down the road? McGrath he worked constantly he never really went away. Yeah. Um, I don't think he had another performance that was quite as iconic. Unless I'm, and I'm, just the fact that I constantly confuse him with Derek McGrath means that there wasn't one. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's funny maybe he played the role so well that people just thought it was real. Again, that verite sensibility where someone gives an amazing performance and you just... You don't see it as a demonstration of range. Right. Because he, he's just so good that he disappears.
1: Yeah, whereas Paul Bradley... You can never have the movie on his shoulders, I don't think. Because he just couldn't pull the weight. I mean,
0: so like, Yeah, he has to be more passive. He has Isn't to be more like passive. And the more passive role.
1: In, yeah, the more passive role. And he the way Shabib kind of has him in there, he's kind of using, I see him, I, just from my own point of view, I can see him kind of like situating him in a place where he can really shine, where he doesn't have to carry too much of the load. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's there in the right moments at the in the right time. and Because I don't think he necessarily has the same chops as, as, uh, as, an, as, yeah, yeah. 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 So, but he can like do his thing and like, give an amazing performance in that other way that he doesn't have to carry like the emotional burden of of the Pete character yeah
0: no we get to feel for him Mm -hmm. in the moment so he just all he really needs to do is be there and take it yeah while we sympathize but I love I still like
1: the scene where the two guys are talking they're in the the bottling plant and um Pete's trying to explain to Joey like how what they're doing at the plant is meaningless yeah (laughs) that they're stacking like they're doing all these like stacking all these crates of bottles and it's just going away at the door and nothing they're doing is matters and uh, Paul Bradley's just so wonderful in that
0: scene like he's like he just doesn't understand what yeah. he's talking about but I'm doing my job and right? mm-hmm. like you can see he's the work is the thing that he's doing and he's focused on it yeah yeah it's it's true whereas Pete wants to be remembered and leave his mark even though it's going to be a disastrous mark and leave scars and and be horrible mm-hmm. It's the endless Contradiction of that movie It's still so much fun Watching people Make the wrong decisions Yeah and another movie I was thinking about too was Midnight Cowboy For some reason like, Yeah I mean it lines up They're right around The same time And, and again it's Two people in a Self-destructive relationship uh, And somebody else Mentioned Easy Rider a couple of times, yeah. although I think that's really just more because of the independent nature of it. I they I don't really see a lot of resonance between those two, but Midnight Cowboy makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, because I remember I watched Midnight Cowboy shortly after Going Down the Road. I think I had seen Midnight Cowboy before I, I saw Going Down the Road, but then I went back to Midnight Cowboy. I couldn't believe how slick and shiny Midnight Cowboy seemed after watching Going yeah, Down the Road. sure. You know? Even though like it was a fairly gritty flick, Hollywood flick in nineteen sixty nine or sixty seven or whenever it came out, but then, but the relationship between like Ratso and John Boyd's character, kind of yeah, there's definitely some. But some resonance. Some resonance there, there, but I think you know like it's just like uh, it's so it's very, the grittiness of going down the road. It's still very gritty.
0: Yeah, even in restorations, it doesn't look shiny it never i mean it never did it never did yeah but that does work right like it steeps it in authenticity and makes it feel just you can see grime you can see the the kitchen counters aren't totally clean it doesn't feel staged in any way Mm -hmm. it just feels like you've wandered into these people's lives and you're with them for a while and then they leave and we're left behind and it's like it's I. I still want them to. I still want it to work out. I still want them to find happiness, and they never will. That's, that's the the contradiction of the film. It just keeps coming back. Yeah, no, not even Youngstreet can. Uh, no, can no. bring them back. Next can't save them. No, Harvey's is closed now. <laughs> <What> <laughs> that's are you that's
1: right. What are you going to do? But then I'm remembering, like one of the things that Don Chiba did talk about with going down the road was the transitions, mm. um, and the movie is full of these great transitions. Like of like the shot kind of like almost like shot cuts like where it goes from a very quiet scene to like the whistle at the plant and yeah, like yeah. the bottles kind of coming through it it's full of these very dramatic transitions where it's going from quiet to loud and um he talked about how that, like that was like a trick from his old documentary days of doing docs so was to like incorporate these transitions of yeah. going from very quiet to very loud and um just like great insert shots of the plant of like the bottles coming down and um but then also feel, again like with the style of it also but then also like kind of like very nice like there's some very fluid like movements camera movements that don't feel like a documentary at all like so they, they, there's like these kind of like narrative filmmaking techniques that are kind of thrown in there with the verite style but you just don't really see it like yeah. unless you're really looking for it like there, there's like some beautiful Like tracking shots in there and some walk and talks and yeah.
0: Well, this is what I mean about the rules not being formed, right? Like it's because it's functioning as both dramatic feature and documentary. Some part of your brain is responding to those differences and trying to reconcile them into a single work, which I think is why it feels so weird and unpredictable. Even though I've you know I've seen the movie a number of times, I shouldn't be set on edge or surprised by it. But it's always some some part of my brain is always being tugged at. Mm-hmm. by the movie because it won't obey the rules. It's just doing what it wants to do. Which, again, makes it feel like it's really happening right in front of you.
1: Well, yeah, like the scene in Ellen Gardens is a scene that's just that... Yeah, yeah. Like that's the like a famous one where they... I can't remember. It was one of the actors or somebody who was very close by or was in that park and these people had gathered around. Yeah, I
0: heard that story. He called Shabib and had him come down and had to him the come down
1: the camera. And like it's just unfolding in front of you. And there's something... Yeah, I mean, that's a sad scene for a lot of different reasons. Um, but very real. Like, everything that's happening is, very, is just, like, happening in front of your eyes. But uh, now I'm very very curious to know, like, did these did a lot of the people in the film even know they were in the movie? Like, these shots of the old fellows in the Salvation Army. Like, was Shabib just, like, in there with the camera, just picking off whatever he
0: could? I mean, I bet so. You know? I mean, why wouldn't Why wouldn't you do that in 1970, right? Like, that's just... You didn't need releases. You didn't need notices. I'm sure there was really no legal prohibition, right? It was a small movie. They didn't have anybody... There was nothing they could be sued for. No. Like, it's just... can we? It might have even been simply, you know, stay here. You want to be in a movie? we'll, We'll make a movie. Nobody would have thought twice about it in 1970. Nobody ever figured this thing would happen or get released. Yeah. Who makes movies in English Canada? Like, this was...
1: Yeah, see, I don't this know that thing. much of the history of it before. Like, I, I, I've heard of that it was like the birth of English-language cinema in Canada, but I don't really know what was tr- going on before that. There was
0: a big documentary movement through the NFB, but as far as I know, English-language dramatic features just didn't happen. The, uh, I'm trying to remember where Winter Kept Us Warm fits into this. It's either 1964 or 1974, mm-hmm. but that's the only other one I can think of, being shot in Toronto that wasn't some sort of location shoot for a foreign production. And even then, we weren't doing that. That didn't happen like tax shelter days, maybe, but this predates most of those. It wasn't until going down the road that people realized you could make movies here. So that's
1: kind of astonishing to me. So there was basically no, even with what was going on in the U.S., no, with Hollywood. There was
0: television. There, there was TV television. She was doing live to videotape stuff, but feature films just weren't happening. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. And then was the, t- the tax
1: shelter. The whole tax shelter era. Did that come? Was that kind of on the heels of going to '72?
0: Yeah, I mean stuff like when was um, when was Cannibal Girls made? (laughs) That's that's the one. (laughs) That's the one I always think about as the sort of the the thing that really started. Like Black Christmas was '74. Cannibal Girls predated that, I think. And the internet says, nineteen seventy-three. So yeah, it would have been like a year or two later. The ball got rolling with a lot of this stuff, and. um, very little of it was any good. Nobody was trying to make going down the road that was that was the thing right. They just realized that you could make movies here. They didn't have to be good or memorable, and some of them are just out of luck. Mm-hmm. But the idea that there was going to be a sudden revolution of Canadian films that were about something and spoke to the moment that that didn't really happen. You know we had a couple of films here and there. That started, in the, but it wasn't even in the 70s. It was um, Heartaches, that's the film. Heartaches. Uh, yeah, Don Chabib made Heartaches in 1981 with Margot Kidder, and that was 10 years later. And it's a different kind of story about somebody taking a pregnant young woman under her wing. But the, uh, the industry just didn't exist to make, you know, quote unquote, proper movies. I mean, if you look back at Canadian cinema in the 70s, it's all Quebecois. And then here we have stuff like The Silent Partner and The Kidnapping of the President and and movies that were genre products that were supposed to legitimize the Mm -hmm. industry. And they kind of do. They were technically well made, but they weren't remembered for anything. Like, what's The Gray Fox? 81, 82? That was was the start of the real, legitimate cinematic movement. Because even Cronenberg's films, while great, are still genre pieces. And the first two were made in Montreal. Really? Yeah, Shivers and Rabbit. And what year were those? Seventy-four and seventy-five, or seventy-four and seventy-six? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens
1: now. Like the way the telefilm has restructured their funding, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next five or ten years. Yeah.
0: Well, we're going to start to see the micro-budget films this fall, right? Like they'll start to roll out. The yeah. Which was shot last year is going to be ready. And there's going to be so much of it. I'm. I look forward to it because we we are starting to see. I think the the last four or five years already has been a really good period for Canadian cinema. We're starting to see it figure out what it can do well and what it wants to do. Yeah. And yeah, that's going to be interesting. And I would love to see someone come up with something like Going Down the Road now because that's the movie I keep thinking about where you can't duplicate the energy, but the structure is perfect. You could tell that story in a million different ways from any other community to any other city Mm -hmm. in Canada. And maybe someone can do that in a way that kind of sparks the interest again.
1: But yeah, there's like I'm very curious. I think it's going to be a great thing because more people are getting a foot in the door in Canada in terms of being able to make a film, mm-hmm. even if it's worth a hundred and fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. You know, because once they get that foot in the door, then they can make another film, and they can, you know, and maybe out of twenty, two of them might turn out to be really, really great. But yeah, that's a lot more than we had probably fifteen years ago when it was extremely difficult for anyone to get funding. Sure, and the other
0: eighteen can. Do other stuff too. They can mm-hmm. keep working, get better, and refine themselves. Do television, whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. We're in a place right now where I feel really, really helpful. and it's it's not something I'm used to feeling. It's it's good. It's good to look forward. Yeah,
1: it is great to look forward. I mean, because Shabab was only twenty eight when he made Going Down the Road, so like you know, yeah. so he was a young guy. He'd done a ton of documentary stuff, but. Um, so he's, a, but he's a very young filmmaker when he made that. I didn't realize that until I just I read that last week. I think he was only twenty eight.
0: Yeah, it makes sense too. I mean, you have to be young enough to be that ambitious to think you can pull off something that's never been tried before.
1: Yeah, in a young man's story.
0: Yeah, it's true. He's, he's smarter about it than they are, which is really important, right? If a, a younger filmmaker might have bought into the delusions, and an older filmmaker might make it too obvious that they're not going to make it. This mm-hmm. one. He's exactly in the right place to just observe and, and report. Observe and report, yeah. yeah. And make us realize what's going on in third and fourth viewings and just still want to keep watching. Mm-hmm. That poor guy.
1: <laughs> Which poor guy? Oh, Joey. Joey, yeah. Screw
0: Pete. He brought it on himself. My thanks to Jeremy Larder, whose new film Poggy Beach is available for rental and purchase on iTunes right now. You can also find the series, Just Passing Through, on YouTube. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Jeremy on Twitter at Jeremy Larder, all one word. And you can find Going Down the Road on Blu-ray in a special edition from Elevation Pictures. The bad news is it's a twofer that also includes Down the Road Again. But you don't have to watch that. You really, really don't. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.